Welcome to Spark, practices and habits that spark a deeper love. In this series, we are listening to stories from different people in the community about how what they do in their everyday lives connects to God's loving and renewing work in the world. I have conversations every week that inspire me as I learn from and about other people. This week, we hear from Abby Ample. Abby is a paediatric physiotherapist working in early intervention. She talks about her everyday and also models of disability, which provide insight for how we might practice deeper love. Abby, thanks so much for being here with us today and joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's just this opportunity to hear stories from the community because I just find myself in having conversations so inspired um, by what people are doing and how it connects to the broader vision at Missio of like joining God in the renewal of all things. And I remember chit-chatting with you um, over a meal not too long ago and we were talking about what you were doing and it just felt like it struck a chord in terms of this thing that you're doing that connects to other people and that also like just makes you in some ways feel alive when that happens. So felt like a really beautiful opportunity to chat with you here about that too. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so maybe you can just say first, like what what does your what do you do in your everyday? And I know there's lots of things that you do, but um maybe you can just describe like what what you do in your everyday, what you spend a lot of your hours doing. Yes. Um so the you know obviously that kind of comes down to occupation for people who work um so that's me i'm a i'm a pediatric physical therapist and so i work in early intervention which means that i spend my days my working days driving around from home to home and seeing little kiddos little toddlers and babies ages birth to 3 um and it's I, I serve kids who either have a developmental delay or developmental disability, or if they have a medical history that puts them at risk for either of those things, then we can see them and do services in their home. So that's that is what I spend a lot of time doing. Hmm. So if you were to describe that work, like or as you said, occupation, because I know there's lots of different kinds of work that we do, and mm-hmm. this specifically is your occupation. Like, what would that every day look like for you? I mean, it probably looks different from day to day, but if you were to describe some of the components of your every day, what would those components look like? Yeah, so um, it's it's just seeing different families every day and every kid is a, a different situation. Every family is a different situation. So sometimes I'm seeing a kid just for a few visits, things are generally fine. They just like need to catch up here and there, or maybe there's like a little orthopedic thing that clears up pretty quickly. Um, and then some families I'm with for a super long time. I'm there, you know, from when they're discharged from the NICU all the way up until they graduate from our program when they turn three and spending quite a lot of time with that family. Um, the beauty of the job that I'm in right now, I'm a physical therapist. And so majority of the children I'm seeing are there for a gross motor concern, but um, in early intervention, all of us are really quote unquote early interventionists. So I get to look at the child a little bit more holistically. Um, I can help support in other areas besides just gross motor where it's appropriate to do so. And um, just kind of because of the nature of my job, I really get to be an emotional support for families too, because almost all of them are going through something that's like a difficult time in their life. And 
um, you know, that can be varying shades of, of difficulty and emotional needs that families have. And so um, that's something that maybe on the surface, you wouldn't know about this job, but I really spend a lot of time being there for families for more than just the gross motor needs of the child. It's really interesting because I think about whether it's the first child or not, um, have someone having multiple ch- children. It's, I imagine that if a child is in the NICU or there's these, and maybe you could even describe when you talk about gross motor, maybe you could give some more definition to that. Totally. Yeah. So gross motor refers to like the big movements in the body as compared to like fine motor, which, you know, tying your shoes or like eating that kind of thing. So gross motor, I'm working on rolling over head control, trunk control, sitting independently, transitioning in and out of hands and knees, crawling, walking, standing, all those kinds of things. Um, and so a kiddo, like I said, can be there for like a developmental delay. Like, you know, maybe they're nine months and they're not sitting yet and they don't have a diagnosis or anything. They just are like not quite caught up. So it's, um, you know, we have primarily a parent coaching model. So we are not the ones like quote unquote doing therapy on the kid, but rather teaching the parents how they can support their child's development at home. Um, and then it can be yeah anywhere from like a development delay versus like a kid with severe cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or any other type of like neuromuscular condition that is probably going to impact them for their lifetime. But we are trying to set them up for the best future in terms of their function and in terms of like their body structure and like trying to avoid chronic pain and Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Well, and like I was saying, you, you have this child, whether it's your first or um, multiple, like just the idea that in a situation where you don't know if everything's okay or there needs to have support in order to see if there can be these kinds of movements that it would feel potentially really isolating you don't know. I mean, you're driving to home after home after home every day, but a lot of folks don't necessarily have that connection to other families who are dealing with similar kinds of things. And so I can see how the emotional support would also be a big part of this occupation, this daily life that you have. How is it that you um, kind of step into those spaces with parents and probably with little ones too, if if they're old enough? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can think of one story in in particular, there's this one little girl who I work with. um, And sometimes I'm coming in after they've received a diagnosis. Sometimes that happens while I'm in, you know, I'm already in the process of doing therapy. And that was the case for this little girl. She had been referred by her pediatrician um, to therapy and she was progressing, but not, you know, she still had some significant delays and concerns. And so the pediatrician referred to neuro. And I remember I was actually at home with COVID when this happened, um, but I was like not bedridden. So I was able to like do virtual visits and that kind of thing. And um, I was just checking in with this mom and she told me, she gave me an update of like, yeah, we've been to see neuro and they scheduled her for an MRI and all of these things. And so I just texted her like that. How are we feeling about this? That's a big news. And she was like, I'm super overwhelmed. I'm scared. I'm nervous. And I text her back, like, do you just want to talk about this? Do you want to call? And so I gave her a phone call and we talked for like just half an hour. And that's, I feel like that's the beauty of this job too, is that I have a little bit more space in my day than an outpatient clinic. I, I, I don't have to worry about whether this is a billable thing or not. Like I can just 
do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, just kind of talking her through, like, these are the things that could happen. If this happens, here's kind of the plan. If this happens, there's a plan for this. Um, and actually it's like such a beautiful job because you learn from it too. And this mom told me something that the neuro neurologist said to her that I've taken with me from that interaction, which was that this is still the same little girl that you've known and loved her whole life. We're just learning more about her and what a beautiful way to like navigate such a tricky issue where it's like, you think that like, she, you know, this mom is just imagining, is she ever going to walk? Is she going to talk? Is she going to be able to participate in school? What's like, what is her whole future going to look like? And just um, because I'm the therapist and I've been able, I've had the luxury of spending a lot of time with her. I can kind of thread that line of being realistic, but also optimistic at the same time of like, well, it's possible that we may need some accommodations, but let's look at where she started and where she is now. She's already changed a lot and mm -hmm. that's a great trajectory to be on. And so just being able to like hold someone's hand through that a little bit. I really think like even just talking with some of my family members, when they have health issues that come up, they go to the doctor, they're really overwhelmed. They don't know all the right questions to ask. They don't know what any of this means. And it's like, we need like professional medical handholders, <laughs> I think um, for people that just need like that tiny little bit of extra space and support. Mm -hmm. And I get to be that role for a lot of people. Mm. It's such a gift to think about having that kind of a person, you know, that has maybe more of a medical vocabulary or has seen um, different kinds of scenarios and knows what kind of supports could be available. The way that that doctor described it, like here's this person that we're learning more about and I think you said it was the doctor that yes. had said that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just think, like, what a gift to be able to um, just bring experience to something that just probably feels so new and um, discombobulating or unnerving um, mm -hmm. into a family's life. So I'd love to talk, too, about, like, what does it look like? What does it look like to help, um, you know, as a as a physical therapist, you see these things, and then, like, I remember too, you were telling me a story over the meal where it's like watching this progress and the celebration that comes when, and maybe progress isn't the right word that I would want to use. Like watching this um movement or growth once these things have happened. Like, what I'd love to hear kind of what that's like, how that is for you, a story of what that's like. Yeah, I feel like early intervention is just the most wonderful population to work with because you are the person who gets to be there mm -hmm. for the first, you know, and I can't tell you how many sessions I've had where I'm able to get the kid to take their first steps. And like, that's like the most gratifying thing in the world. And I think the story that you're referencing, if I'm remembering when I was telling you about it, like um, being in early intervention um, we drive to people's homes and I love that we get to do that for lots of reasons. But one of them is just that the child is usually the most comfortable and like is more able to participate in these things that we are working on. So this little girl that I worked with, um, she had been going to outpatient therapy for months before they started early intervention. I forget if it was six months or nine months. It was a long time. Um, and the mom was telling me about how this little girl just would like scream when they walk in the door. Cause she recognized the place. And this is where I go to do hard things. And like, you know, it's just not her happy place. Mm 
And this is not a knock on that outpatient therapist. I would have done the exact same thing that she did. She was like, did all of the things to help her feel comfortable and, you know, fun play, you know, it's just really hard. <laughs> the little girl doesn't feel safe. The other wonderful thing about early intervention is that we don't have to worry about insurance. So I spent like probably my first two or three visits with her, just playing with her so that she would see me like recognize me, be comfortable with me. Um, she was still a tough one. She wouldn't let me touch her for a long time. And that, you know, can be challenging when you're working on, you know, helping a kid with gross motor skills. Um, but the mom was amazing and I was able to coach her and how to help her daughter and put her in different positions. And I just saw milestone after milestone after milestone that we could achieve because we were able to like actually accomplish things during our visits. And so mm -hmm. she went from, she, I think she was like 10, 11 months when I first started with her. And the only thing that she could do was sit and scoot around on her bottom. She couldn't even transition up to sitting, which is kind of crazy at that age. She wasn't rolling, wasn't crawling, wouldn't accept weight through her hands and knees, any of that. Um, and we just, we were able to get her through to like, she was able to transition up into sit and out of sitting. And then she was like kneeling at surfaces. And then she was pulling to sand. And now that same little girl is walking everywhere. She's walking on, you know, grass and incline. And like, she's just really come such a long way. And I think a lot of that comes from just the gift that we have and being able to see the kid where they're most comfortable. Hmm. I just think what is so beautiful about that is that it's such a picture to me of, um, how the everyday is connected to how we would define what is renewing, the beauty of watching growth happen, the beauty of seeing um, a little human go from not having the tools and the support to be able to move and run around to being able to. Um, and I think we can sometimes really underestimate what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, because it's not necessarily like traditionally what we would say of practices of faith. Mm. And yeah, I just, it just feels so alive with goodness what you're <laughs> doing. And so I don't know if there's anything you would want to share um, about any of that. Yeah, totally. Well, and I, I think that coming from being a person of faith, it changes how you think about what you're doing when you work with a population of people who have a disability. Um, there was this uh, disability theologian that I um, heard a podcast from, and she said something that like really reframed my job. Um, and it just like connects with some of the like theories of disability in such a beautiful way. She talked about um, the story of doubting Thomas. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those like moments where it, it's like not even a personal interaction, just this lesson I learned, this thing I read where it's just like, I will never be the same again after hearing this thing. It was like changed things for me. Yeah. But she was telling the story of doubting Thomas and like reading it through the lens as a, as a person with a disability and how Jesus comes back. Um, and, you know, doubting Thomas is like, he, he doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And, you know, I think sometimes that we kind of gloss over this, that like, we think he just kind of has these like little bitty scars, little freckles in his hands to kind of, there's a proof of what happened to him, but they're healed and they're fine. But if you really read this story, he's like a bit gruesome about it. Like, put your hand in my side, put your finger through the holes in my hands. Um, they're unhealed wounds. And how 
powerful is that that like the most perfect version of this resurrected god like the the jesus who has been through the other side and is back again has unhealed wounds like and that's not he is who he is jesus is who he is not in spite of those but because of those Hmm. um and we can be like a broken body or an unhealed body is fully the image of God. And so what does that mean for people with disabilities? And I think especially like in the context of an evangelical faith perspective where there's, you know, prayers for healing and someday you'll walk again. And, you know, that, that kind of notion that gets tossed about a lot for people with disability, it's very well-intentioned and, and who knows what's going to happen to our, you know, our bodies when things are restored. But I, it's kind of changed. What does it mean to do renewal? Like it doesn't necessarily mean you have to fix this person's body. Sometimes that's part of it, but reframing like what we even think about our bodies and, and what does that mean? Um, and just that like every kid we work with is a precious child of God. And I, I think in some ways our, my job is a little bit like we live in a broken world and being able to walk matters. So we're going to try to do everything that we can to help this person access the environment and relationships and community as much as we can, because we kind of have to, but just kind of bearing that in mind of like, I don't know. And I don't know if that's really a fully, (laughs) a full thought that I have, like, what does that mean for my job when my job is a lot of like fixing people's quote unquote, fixing people's bodies. Um, but I think it just kind of changes how I approach things and how I think about things a little bit kind of connects with, we learn in school, there's like different models of disability. There's like the medical model of disability, which is basically something's wrong with you and you need to fix it versus the social model of disability of like something's wrong with the environment. Like there's nothing wrong with using a wheelchair if there's ramps everywhere. Um, there's like a really interesting story I read um, that was like about the deaf community and how there are like small villages where everyone in the community is deaf and it's not a disability there because everyone there speaks in sign language. So just kind of reframing like renewal is yes, individual, but it's also how are we supporting and pulling people in? Um, because that's what Jesus is all about is inviting everyone to the table and yeah. <laughs> Dude, Abby, it's so good. And I think it's such it's such an important thing for us to think about the things that you're naming right now. Like if we have this imagination that's given to us by a loving and caring, benevolent God, then thinking about renewal in the terms that you're just saying, um, Oh, that I have all kinds of thoughts. I've got to find my way to on that. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't think know if I said that in kind of a rambling way. I don't know if that was clear. Oh, no, it's so, it was so clear, and I love the direction that it's taking us. I think it's just a really good direction for us to go in, um, because I think as able-bodied people, we can make an assumption about what what things need to look like. And then the, the the story that you've just told about Christ, it's like there's a turning of maybe that could spark in our imaginations um, as community and as society, like what does renewal um, actually look like when we are held by different kinds of bodies? Mm. Um, and when we are held 
by kinds of bodies that work differently or that function differently or that have differing capacities like what does renewal actually look like when that's who we are as people instead of assuming that certain types of bodies need to be like that people need to be held by particular kinds of bodies and that means that they're okay or that they're good or um what would you say are some of the things that as a community it would be worth us paying attention to or being aware of or like how can we have the eyes of eyes of openness to where we can participate in renewal and loving loving um action yeah i think that's a really big question and I think there are like a lot of little things and then a lot of colossal monumental things (laughs) because I think about it too in the terms of like for a kid with a delay like why am I here why are we concerned about this because this kid will eventually catch up and be fine you know it kind of trickles down from like our end goal is we want our kids to be self-sufficient which means we want them to have a job we want them to make money and like take care of themselves which means if you backtrack it it's like that means they have to do well in school which means they have to do well in elementary school which means they have to be prepared for kindergarten which means that they have to have enough language which means they have to be able to like walk and move and access their environment so they can have cognitive rich experiences and that kind of thing so really it's like why do we care about the timeline of when this child starts crawling or walking it's like at the end of the day that's what a parent is thinking about They want their kid to be on track to eventually achieve all those goals. And so I kind of think about like, what do we do to like make the environment more accessible? It's like, I think a big, big answer is um, having more social supports in place. Like we live in a world of so much abundance that that's just like resources are kind of not shared in a way that like, I, I don't think that we need to worry about whether a child with a disability is going to get a job someday like we we have enough resources in the world but we shouldn't have to worry about that question um and so maybe like actionable steps of what we can do is like just being mindful of like what social programs you can support whether that's politically or even just the way that you're using your money and donating you know to like like Shriners Hospital is an amazing resource. I don't exactly know how they're funded, but I refer every family who has a kid who will need equipment to go there because they, they are like a one-stop shop for everything. They will loan out stuff before you order it. They will give out wheelchairs that they like personally make for kids there. And they accept people regardless of their insurance, regardless of their financial situation early intervention itself is funded by the state and it's like a very very affordable family fee structure and if they can't even pay that we waive it for them you know it's things like that that are really meaningfully important and helpful to these families and then maybe in smaller ways of just like thinking about how can we make our environments and spaces more accessible to them and missio is already doing that with the culture city thing is awesome um thinking about like are all the spaces in our church accessible to someone who needs a wheelchair or or can't do stairs you know she the the same disability theologian talked about how like the church space will often be accessible but maybe the stage isn't and so what is that saying about who do we want to be on the stage at our church and maybe that's something missio could think about just putting a ramp in to access the stage 
even I, when I had like my knee surgery, I was like, I hope I can hobble up these stairs. Um, and just how, you know, that, that disability theology perspective is really for everyone. Cause it's about including everyone at the table. This is so important and so beautiful. And I would love the name of the theologian that you're talking about. Yes. Um, her name is Stephanie Tate. I, um, I haven't actually like read anything from hers, but I, everything I'm getting from her is from uh, an interview she did on the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I mean, this is just so beautiful that I think what I'm hearing in you is that renewal is like having an imagination for um, not only this expectation that other people would adapt to what we've determined as society is the trajectory for like success, you know, as you Mm -hmm. talked about, but that people in societies would um, learn how to behave, um, create space, be intentional about that in just really practical ways. I, I think it's really important to use helpful language. Not, it's not like that we're adapting, but it's like that we are, being intentional about communicating very specific things and like you said you put a ramp up to the stage like there's a there's this form of communication that is happening and doing something like that and the form of communication is that we 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 welcome you we want you you're part of of this community huh so good I'd love to talk about that more. I was thinking about, there was two things you said before, and I'd like to go back to that. There's a social aspect. And what was the other one? Um, So there's a lot of models of disability, but two of the biggest ones, there's like a medical model of disability, which is more or less, this person has a medical problem. And then the social model of disability, which is broad strokes, there is a problem with our society, culture, structures, communities that is making it hard for those people to access environments and spaces. Would love to hear more thoughts if you have them on like the social model or the medical model of disability. Yeah. Um, I remember <laughs> just kind of like going through the developmental phases of being a therapist. Like when I first learned about this in school and I'm embarrassed to admit it when they were like, you have to think about it. Is the problem, the person or the problem, the thing. And I was like, what are you talking about? The person can't walk. That's a problem. What are we even talking about? And like, just kind of maturing and realizing that like, it's really about the cultural expectations about productivity. It is true that when we assume that our ultimate purpose in life is to be economically productive, then you will think about people with disability as though there is something wrong with them. Um, I think about it, and this is maybe a tangent, but I was listening to a podcast about um, reading the creation story as a poem, and they talk about how there's a chiasm structure to it. And basically it's like, it's like a poem. And the point of it is that it's pointing to a central word in that text. And the word was rest. And it's just so interesting that we kind of like read this as a science textbook about where the earth came from when it's really, it's talking to the Israelites about how their job is not to make bricks. Their job is to be 
in the image of God and how he wants them to rest. Um, and I just think about how far we've strayed from that thought when, um, when, yeah, when we look at a person who, you know, has some function that we expect them to have, whether that's walking, whether that's communication, whether it's, um, I mean, even in the autism world, I'm not a specialist with autism, but there's a lot of conversations within these professions about self-stimming and like eye contact and that sort of thing. And you know what, if a person can talk to you without looking at you in the eyes, why do we care about that? That's perfectly fine. If the person needs a fidget spinner in order to stay in a space, what's so wrong about that? I think we get caught up in like the image of things and what our expectations of like what a right person looks like that we've kind of lost our way in that way. Hmm. I think that's really a beautiful way of describing um, like how to look and how to see. Like if we have particular kinds of expectations or predisposed notions of what it means to be um, healthy or functional or good or however we might define that. Um, yeah, then that can be, we can be putting an inordinate burden um, on like entire groups of people or and not assuming a burden that we could like it, it's like where you put the weight, where you put the burden. Is it on another person, mm -hmm. on another community, or am I going to absorb some of the weight of this burden in order for there to be a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of secured identity um, outside of like what would be perceived as like normal function or health or bodily wellness? And I also love that you just brought us back to like the narrative, the poem at the beginning of the text in Genesis, which is like focusing on rest. I don't know if there's anything you'd want to say more about um, how does rest play into like the thing that you just talked about, this support that you give for these gross motor functions, the support that you give emotionally. There's this broader, big dialogue about kind of the social model of disability. How would you say that rest plays into that, either for people that you're working with, for you, kind of for us as a society? Yeah. Um, well, I can think of one thing specifically. As a younger therapist, I had very high expectations for the parents' ability to follow through on a home exercise program. And I would get really frustrated when they wouldn't do the things I told them to like your kid would be doing so much better if you would just do what I told you to. And as I've grown and matured and had a little bit of um, perspective on this, I've learned to have a lot more grace for parents. Um, being a parent of a child who does not have a disability is hard enough, but then having a child who you have to like, do all these extra therapies and doctor's appointments and exercises and all these things at home. Of course they can't follow through on a home exercise program. And, you know, some do, some don't, you have to just kind of meet the parent where they're at, but that concept of rest of just like this person also would like some space in their life to just be a family and have some time together where they're not working on something where not every moment of the day is working on 
strengthening this or stretching that or positioning it this way. Um, so I have learned to incorporate that better in the sense of like reading the parents, some parents want a list of 15 exercises and they'll do them every day. And like, great, I can give you that. Let's figure out what works for you. And so just meeting the family where they're at, every family has a little bit more capacity than others, but just, um, yeah, not being judgmental when a family needs some more time to rest and just mm-hmm. doesn't have the capacity for everything, knowing that that's, that is a perfectly valid and okay thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think rest is something that is um, is not – a lot of times it doesn't feel like it's the thing that we reach for, especially when um, it feels like there's this barrage of expectations coming towards us. So whether that's an expectation as a family where you're really trying to work hard to do everything you can to support the person around you. So I just think – like that example and then I think too of how if we if we had more of a an imagination for rest if we didn't see ourselves as only being people who needed to produce Mm -hmm. exactly yeah like how would that change the way we see ourselves the way we see each other the way that we order societies that somehow we would get away from like a production um, mindset, not necessarily productivity, because I think rest can be really productive, but like a production, if we get ourselves away from a production, like how differently potentially we would be able to see each other. And I think to myself too, when I'm at rest, I have a lot more um, presence. Like there's a lot more that I'm able to notice about a situation or a circumstance or a person than if I'm just hurried and needing to get from point A to point B. I don't know exactly if this connects perfectly, but just thinking about this broader sense of like our identity and um, what does that mean for people with disabilities? There is one really interesting study, another thing that was like, well, I'm never the same again after I heard this fact. They did a study on quality of life. And so basically they had people who have a disability rate their own quality of life. And then they had their caregivers, you know, medical professionals um, rate what they thought that that person's quality of life was. And across the board, people with disabilities rated their own quality of life as higher than what the medical professionals thought that their quality of life might be. Um, And so I don't know if that connects to our conversation or if it's just an interesting tidbit that I feel like I need to tell everyone about, (laughs) but just, um, again, this idea of that, like sort of divorcing our concept of of identity with these like narratives of what normalcy is and what, you know, these people, they must, you know, kind of with that, that disability theologian and how she gets so frustrated when people are praying for healing for her. And she's like, I don't feel like I need to be healed. I, I am in the image of God in the body that I'm in right now. Um, And I just thought that was a really amazing, interesting little tidbit. Well, it really is an amazing tidbit. And I think it speaks so deeply to like both the sense of identity that we can hold on to um, and the, the, the research, like sewing that our perceptions of someone who 
maybe doesn't hold the body doesn't hold the same as ours and our perception about what it means to have an existence and the lived experience in there we might just actually be wrong about it mm-hmm. yeah um, and to be really thoughtful about what kind of assumptions and judgments and conclusions we're coming to about somebody else's lived experience that we just don't have um because I'm imagining that some of the vocabulary some of the words some of the kind of flippant statements that can come off of our tongues um, just actually reduces that sense of, like you said, image bearing. I'm already, there's already so much goodness that is exuding out of me. And like, you're the one that doesn't see it. And the things that you're saying, like just kind of, you're the one, you're actually the one that doesn't see it. And your words are betraying your understanding of what it means to be an image bearer more than it is an indictment on how my body holds me. I just think about how there are these practices and habits that can can lead us to a deeper love. And some of the things that I've really heard in our conversation, rest as a practice that can um, kind of shift us out of particular kinds of mindsets or expectations that we place on ourselves or others. Um, another one that I heard was... Um, like a practice of intentionally doing things tangibly that communicate belonging and communicate that we like we want others to be a part of our community whether that's in our church or in our societies at large and that we there are things we can do structurally there are resources that we can pay um on our end that that add to kind of a more robust social inclusion um so I hear that as another practice um, are there any other practices that you as we've chatted today that you are like yeah though these are things that we can do that can spark deeper love in us yes I feel like humility is always a good answer mm-hmm. of um like not coming into these situations as like I am the one who knows the things and I am the one who has the right body um and just realize like just yeah coming in with an open heart and open mind of like and being open to being wrong (laughs) about how you're perceiving something or about how you are um yeah if there's if just yeah I, I think the only times in my life that I've really grown professionally or personally is when I've like dropped my defenses and opened myself up to what have I, what, what missteps have I made? And knowing that like, that's usually received pretty well. People like it when you do that and that you can always repair this, you know, like if you're around a person with a disability and you say something wrong, correct yourself, you know, say, you know, I think I phrased that in a a weird way. And I'm sorry about that. Like that you fixed it. Like you have repaired the situation. Hmm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's great because I think sometimes we can be fearful that we're going to misstep rather than assume that we can acknowledge where we have misstepped and that's its own kind of repair, but not stepping into some of these um, places is, yeah, or assuming that we know can be, can be worse. Yeah, exactly. I also wanted to know, note that you mentioned Steve, Stephanie Tate and maybe that's a resource for people if they want to learn more about Yes. Um, I, 
like I said, I, I really, I only listened to one podcast from her, but it was a good one. So it's uh, the Bible for normal people with Stephanie Tate as the guest. She's a disability theologian. And um, I really think that it's, it, you don't, you shouldn't only listen to it if you know someone with a disability or if that's meaningful to you. Like it's really, I think everyone should, it's, it's just uh, disability theology is for everyone. I think is the name of the episode. And I think it's really true because it, it changes um how we how we think of our own identity in relation to being children of god um because if it's true that i mean i think if we bring it to the furthest degree like i i think there's there's children that i've worked with who are children of god they are in the full image of god and they do not walk they do not talk they you know need support for all of the typical functions in their life and if that's true for them that's true for us too. You know, if we feel like we are not as skilled in our jobs as we would like to be, or we kind of repair, like damaged a relationship or something like that, just knowing that our identity is already secure outside of those things mm-hmm. and how much softer hearts we can have when we come from this place of security and love and knowing that, that we are who we are, regardless of what we produce or what we do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really beautiful place to stop it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that Mm. sounds good. Thanks, Abby. Thank you. This was the last episode in this series, and it's been a delight to have these conversations over the last few months. I hope listening to stories from people's everyday lives has inspired you to think about how your daily life connects to God's renewal. I'm convinced it does. I hope too that you'll try out some of the practices different people named in this series and that they cultivate in and around you a deeper love.